Good morning again. So we're going through Nehemiah. We're on. We're almost there. We're almost to the end. We're on chapter eight. We're, we're skipping chapter seven. Uh, chapter seven, if you read through it, it's not the most exciting book. So, um, and we'll probably skip another chapter toward the end. But we're down to the last few, few chapters, a few, few more sermons. I think there's about four left, and then we'll be moving on to a new series. So, uh, what do you think of Nehemiah so far? Is it interesting? Interesting stuff. Um, we've been having a good time at the Wednesday night Bible studies. The, we've been uh, digging in a little deeper and, and really good discussions there. I'd encourage you to, it's not too late, jump in there, come with us and, and on this journey as we, as we look through Nehemiah and, and apply this stuff into our lives. Um, it's a, it, we're really having a great Bible study on Wednesday nights, and we'll continue that. We'll, uh, I'm going to continue doing Wednesday nights as a mirroring to the sermons. Um, so as the next series that we go through, definitely come on Wednesday nights and, and get more out of the sermons. And, and as a matter of fact, we'll talk a little bit about that today. But have you ever noticed that how many different views there are of the Bible? Um, just, just the Bible in general. You, you have so many. You talk to different people and, and uh, you know, different age groups, different, different uh, uh, lifestyles. And you just have different views. Some people think it's boring. Some people think it's not relevant. Uh, some people think it's just a book of myths. I mean, you, you really, you, you walk down any city and you start talking to people uh, about the Bible and you just ask them, what do you think of the Bible? And you're going to get a variety of answers. As a matter of fact, one youth pastor did this in, in Texas, in Garland, Texas. He went through and he took a video camera and he went around asking people what they thought of the Bible. And, and he recorded it. And I contacted him and asked him if I can use that today. And so we're going to watch his uh, his interaction with these people. Uh, a lot of them are teens, and uh, it's actually very interesting to see how people view the Bible. So let's take a look at this. Good morning, everyone. Hope you're having a great time in service so far. I'm actually up here at Firewheel Town Center here in Garland, and uh, we're just going to go out on the streets today, ask people what they think about the Bible, ask them, is the Bible believable? And does the Bible apply to our lives today? Is it relevant for 2013? So we're going to go ask some people what they think. Let's do this. Uh, first question, uh, Jonathan, right? Yeah. All right, what are your thoughts just in general on the Bible? Honestly... I haven't really thought about it, honestly. I'm just kind of distant from that. I'm not really a religious person. Um, I think it is something that is really good to look forward to when you're in uh, hard times. Um, I think like people should go by it because um, the people like before us wrote it down as like a rule to go by, so they know what's going on and they kind of like um, set forward like laws for us, basically. I see the Bible. As it could, if you're a Christian, it could be religious. If you're not, think of it as like a novel. Like, you know, you read a novel and it's a fictional story. So, just curious, what is your opinion about the Bible? Ah, that's interesting. Interesting. The Bible is your foundation on life. I believe that actually the Bible, it actually has stories in it that are true. Curious what your thoughts are in general in the Bible. What are your thoughts just in general on the Bible? I'm just asking people their opinion on the Bible. Okay, all right. Thanks, guys. Um, I see it as a ordained word by God. I guess it's just basically a guide for anybody who's seeking help. We talked earlier. Do you consider yourself to be a religious person? No, I'm not a religious person. I'm a okay, so you would profess that you don't. You basically believe there is no God. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you this: You said some of the stories in the Bible are true, mm -hmm. um, but you don't think the Bible is like, universal truth for everyone. Exactly. I can see like Cain and Abel. I can see that happening. A brother killing a brother. Now it doesn't actually have to be Cain and Abel. It's just. Two brothers going to each other. Okay. Which okay. Which is a man-made thing. I think most of it's believable. I mean, people are going to have different ways they think. So, um, so 
some people might think that part of it's true and part of it's not true, but that's all up to the person that's reading it. So let me ask you this. Do you believe the Bible is believable? It could be. In ways, in some ways, not really to me. Uh, yes and no. A lot of the things in there can be uh, shocking and almost seem unbelievable uh, for the common person. But it is believed, so it is believable. Uh, yes, I honestly do. Even though people, some people say that it's outdated or it's for the people for back then, like, even though things change, people end up still being the same. I do think the Bible is believable. Not everyone believes it, obviously, but I, I do believe it. Is the Bible outdated or is it still relevant for our culture today? I guess for people who believe in it, I guess it's relevant for them. You know? Yeah, still relevant. I do believe that the Bible applies today's situation, even though it may not be a word-for-word -word situation, but I do believe you can read something that's Yes and no, because there's, um, I don't know, there's certain things that can be true still, and there's certain things that have changed over the years, and just, it's the way you interpret it, I think. Of course, I mean, uh, it's, everything is always same old, same old, so everything that happened back then is happening now, just with different colors. Do you think the Bible is relevant for people in 2013? It's such an old book. Does it still have truth and relevance for our lives today? As long as people, as Christians, believe that it's true, it's always going to be relevant. Okay. If, if Christianity is always around, it will always be relevant, no matter how big it is, no matter how small it is. Interesting how many views there are, isn't it? There's, there's a lot of different views. A lot of different opinions. I thought he did a great job at that um, with, with the video and, and asking these questions. And, and, you know, I encourage you as, you as you talk to people, as you, you know, go to work and you, and you just get, you know, sit around with lunch, ask, ask your coworkers, what, are, what do they think? You don't have to get into a religious discussion. Just ask them. It, you know, I'm curious. What do you think of the Bible? You'll find that there's so many different answers, uh, and, and, and a lot of us still have misconceptions and misunderstandings of what the Bible is. And here's a few that we're going to talk about today, and, and here's a few that come to mind. The, some people believe that the, the Bible is too confusing to read. It's just confusing. It's hard to understand. Some people believe that it's boring to study, and others believe that it's impossible to imply, to apply. And many of these myths are defeated in Nehemiah chapter 8. They're, they're, they're debunked in this, in chapter 8. The first half of the book, the chapters 1 through 6, Nehemiah starts with, with discuss, or, or works on the wall and rebuilding the city. But now, in chapter 8, there's a shift. There's a change that happens. And that change is, is more about reinstruction of the people. Now it's about talking or teaching the people. And he moved from rebuilding the city to rebuilding the people. One of the misconceptions, uh, or the three myths that we're going to talk about, the myth that the, the Bible is boring or, or, I'm sorry, too confusing to read, we'll see in the first eight verses that the Bible, instead of it being confusing, is actually a book that you can comprehend and you can't understand it. The second myth we're going to talk about is the Bible's dry and boring to study. And we'll discover that verses 9 through 12 that the Bible is anything but dull. Anything but dull. It's actually quite exciting. And the third myth is that the Bible is impossible to apply. We'll see that in verses 13 through 18, the, the relevance of the book and that we can't obey it. We can't apply it in our lives. See, in that, in that chapter, we can debunk those three myths. So let's take a look at the first myth. The first myth is it's too confusing to understand. It's too confusing. Has anybody ever, you know, open up the Bible and they read it and they just, there's parts of it that are just hard to understand? I went to college for this and it still is, is mind-boggling sometimes. I get to certain things and it's hard to comprehend. What does this mean? It, it, there's some parts of it that are a little bit challenging, but the more you study, the more you reveal, uh, the more you understand. See, God's word must be understood before it can enter the heart of us. See, the Bible's not some magic book that is, as soon as you read it, it's, you know, it changes you instantly. You have to, it has to be absorbed into you. You have to understand it. You have to study it for it to really affect you. 
The word understanding is used six times in this chapter. Six times. The word understanding. See, it, there's an importance. There, there's, you can understand it. It's not so confusing that you can't apply it in your lives. Let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. We're going to look at, uh, start with chapter one, or verse 1. All the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given in Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the, or Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all those, or all who would listen understanding, with understanding. See, they came together on the first day of the seventh month, which is the Jewish equivalent to a new year. During this month, Israelites would celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a, a big celebration. And it was a perfect time for them to come together and celebrate. See, they were finishing the wall, the, the, gate, the gates were up, and, and the wall's done, and now they're moving on to celebrate and, and to praise God. And this is a perfect time of year. This is a perfect time for them to come together and celebrate. And they came together as, as one man eager to understand the word of God. They came to, they met before the water gate. Now in the scripture, the water is always a representative of God's word. And Jesus uh, uh, says living water. So water all through scripture is very important. And it's very interesting that they met in front of the water gate. Because there's a, an important semblance there. Instead of waiting to hear what Ezra wanted to preach on, they told Ezra to bring the scribe out and bring out the book of the law. Like an inpatient crowd in a concert, they, they didn't want to just wait for what Ezra was going to preach on. They wanted to hear the word of God. And so they, they asked him to come out. I, I can only imagine being there, but there's probably this, this excitement because they haven't had this. They haven't had the book of the law in a long time. They didn't practice reading the scriptures. And so they're, now they're, they're, they're saying, basically, teach us. They didn't want to just wait for Ezra. They're bringing out the book. Let's hear it. The book of the law was the Torah, which contains the first five books of Moses. And verse 3 tells us that he started reading at dawn and read until lunch. That's about six hours. Six hours of reading. We know from verse 18 that they did that every day for a week. So think about that for a minute. Every day they get up at dawn and they're listening to the Word of God read for six hours every day for a week. That's more than a full-time job. They didn't just sit in the pews. They listened attentively. It's no greater thrill for a preacher to see, you know, see the people listening and their eyes light up about something or they're writing something down. And you can see that they're, they're listening and they're paying attention and they're, they're absorbing what you're saying. That's a, that's a thrill for any preacher. And that's what they were doing. These people were, were thrilled to hear it. They wanted to hear what what they were saying, what the book of the law said. In verse 4, we read that Ezra stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion so they could, so they could see and hear him better. They built this platform for it. Now, in Scotland, there's, there's areas where they have platforms where it's 30 and 40 steps up to preach over. Down in Williamsburg, Virginia, in Colonial Williamsburg, Brutton uh, Parish, which is one of the oldest churches we have. It was uh, founded in the 1600s, and, and it was built in 1711. And there's, a, there's a, a platform up high. It's made out of wood. And there's actually, it's really pretty. If you guys are into woodworking at all, you'd be really amazed at this. But, uh, but on top is a wooden canopy. And when you talk, because they didn't have microphones, when you talk, it would actually amplify out. They probably got some of these ideas from this. To preach God's word so everybody can hear. I actually had the privilege of going up into that little pulpit and, uh, and talk, and it was really fascinating to ha hear that projection. And that's, so they built Ezra this, this long pulpit, this tall thing, so everybody can hear. That's how important they put, the, the importance they put on God's word. Thirteen men stood with Ezra while he, while he read. And when Ezra opened the book, in verse 5, the people honored God by standing up. When they read God's word, they stood up and they honored him. 
as a privilege, as a respect, a reverence. They knew that it wasn't just a guy speaking, a man speaking. They knew that this was the Word of God, and so they stood up with honor. And they knew that they were going to hear the very Word of God. After Ezra praised the great God in verse 6, all the people lifted their hands in response, Amen, Amen. And they, they probably shouted it. They were excited to hear the Word of God. No one fell asleep. Everyone listened attentively. Everyone responded. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their face to the ground. Think about that. Just imagine for a second that situation. So they bring out the, the law, the book of Moses. And they're gonna, they start reading it. And they stand up in reverence to God. And when it was done, they say, yell out, amen. And they bow down and worship. That's reverence. That's honoring God. They loved to hear the word of God. The people went from sitting to standing. And then they raised their hands shouting amen, and then they bowed down and worship. In anticipation of hearing the Bible in a way they can understand, and totally, it totally gripped them. They were locked in. They were focused. They were ready to hear God's word. In verse 8, or 7 and 8, the Levites joined Ezra in helping instruct the people. See, what they did is they come along and they helped explain the scriptures. They helped teach the scriptures. They helped apply it in people's lives. They were, they were the teachers. They were the small group leaders. And they made it clear. And they wanted to make sure that everybody understood what was being read. So the, the Levites, their task was twofold. There's two things that they needed to do. First was to, to translate from the Hebrew into Aramaic, because that was the language that would have got, there were some changes there. And that's, by the way, that's one of the reasons why we have translations today, is we don't, there's changes from the original language to our language. And so we need those differences and those changes. And our changes, our, our language changes over time. You take a King James, 1600s, that's very different English than it is today. That's why we have different translations. So the first was to translate, and the second was to spell out application, and to help them learn and understand what the Scripture said. They needed to spell out the application, and listeners, uh, the people that were listening, would know how to apply God's truth into their lives. They probably broke into small groups and studied and learned and applied small Bible groups. So I want to give you four quick steps to help you better comprehend God's Word. See, God's Word is what, when we understand it, and we dig in, and we study it, and we apply it in our lives, through, and, and memorize it, it changes us. Just reading it doesn't. It's when we understand it and apply it in our lives that does. See, there's scholars out in Harvard and Yale that know the Bible, probably know it better than you and I. They, can memor they have books of it memorized. They're experts in Hebrew. But they don't believe in the Word of God. They don't believe it's authentic. See, they read it. They, they, they can read it, but they haven't changed. They haven't had God in their lives. They haven't accepted Christ. But see, when we have Christ in our life and we study the Word of God, it changes us. So I'm going to give you four quick things, and then we'll move on to myth number two. The first one is, find a good contemporary study Bible. Okay, I, I use three different ones. Um, I have a ESV, this is an English Standard Version, that's very good. I use the uh, North, or New American Standard, which is also a very good translation, and then the Holman Christian uh, Bible. And that's uh, all three of them, what they call a word-for-word -word translation. They do their best to try to take the original language and apply it to an English word the best of their ability. So what they call it a word-for-word -word translation. Some Bibles, they use what they thought for thought. They take a, 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 their original language and they kind of summarize it into an English sentence. It's not as quite as accurate. Still good Bibles and for, what it's, for what they're used for. But find a good contemporary study Bible. Find one that, that has notes in it, that has cross-references. Find one that has, uh, that, that has an index in the back, a concordance. Learn how to use it. 
Learn how to, to, to go in the middle there, in the middle section there, and it shows you cross-references. So you look up Romans 8.1, and you look over and it says, oh, well, here's a whole bunch of verses that talk about that very thing. Learn those things. Learn how to use it. You will, it will open your mind up to, to the God's Word in so many more ways. The notes on there, these are scholars, and they're fantastic, and they'll teach you a lot of things. One of them is Charles Stanley's uh, life, or, uh, life, I think it's Life Application. He does a real good one on applying Scripture into our lives. John MacArthur has a real good one. Uh, there's also one called the Believer's Bible, Believer's Study Bible. That is great. Uh, that's from, from a lot of Southern Baptist scholars have um, put their notes in there. So there's a lot of different ones. I'm not an advocate for one or the other, but, but find a good study Bible. Learn how to use it. Dig in. And when you have that, read a chapter every day. Most chapters are pretty quick. Most chapters you can read in maybe five to ten minutes. Read a chapter every day. Take notes on it. Grab a journal. Teresa bought a bunch of journals. We, I'm sure we can give you a, a, a comp. We've been using the composition books. You want to write something down? Write down the verses that are, that are meaning something to you. and God seems to be directing you to. Write it down. Write some notes. Write down what you feel is going on, or what, what you've learned from this. The next thing is be attentive during preaching and teaching time. When you, when you, when you come on Sunday mornings, bring the notes. That's why we have in the bulletin, there's a, a little note page now. I put that in there so you can take notes and, and write down some key points. Write down some things that, that are meaningful to you. Maybe something that I said or, or something that you read up here has, has just kind of hit you. And you're like, hey, you know what, I need to remember that. Write those things down. Be a, pay attention. Get plenty of sleep the night before so you're not coming here tired and falling asleep. Pay attention during, during preaching and teaching time. And finally, participate in a Bible study. Participate in a Bible study. Get involved in a Wednesday night Bible study or get involved in a small group or, or a Sunday morning Bible study. Even if it's not here, there's Bible studies going on all around our county, all around our area. Of course, I'd prefer you to go to one of ours. But, but there's Bible studies everywhere. Go to one. Plug into one. Learn. That's one of the reasons why I strategized. Of, or I, I made the decision to do Wednesday nights to tailor to the Sunday morning sermons so we could take the Sunday morning sermons and dig in deeper to the very subject that we're talking about. Get into a Bible study. You will grow so much more in these just like the Levites, Sunday school teachers and stuff, they've been teaching for a while. Most of them have. And a lot of them have been trained or they've been involved in Sunday school long enough where they know how to answer questions and help you find answers in Scripture. So you want to you comprehend God's Word? There's four simple things to do. And it'll help you grow in a tremendous way. So that's myth, myth number one. It, you can't understand it. Myth number two is that the Bible is too boring to study. Boring. The truth of the matter is that you can rejoice in it. We see this in verses 9 through 12. When Ezra read and small group leaders explained the word, the congregation's first response was that of conviction and grief. In verse 9, they were convicted. They're saddened. They're confronted with God's word, and, and, it, and it saddened them because they weren't living up to, to what God expected of them. See, it's a natural reaction when we read the Bible to have some guilt. That's normal. Because God is confronting our behavior. He's confronting the things in our lives. And that's normal. That happens. The people wept because they knew that they'd been neglecting God's word. And so they read it and they knew that. And it, and it saddened them. It broke their heart. And another, word, another reason they're broken up is because their hearts were convicted by what they heard. Romans 3.20 says, Through the law, we become conscious of sin. Through the law, through the Bible, we become aware of our sin. We become aware of the things that we do. The ministry of Scripture caused them to see the beauty of God and the ugliness of their own hearts. They saw the beauty of God and their own sin. Through weeping is, though weeping is necessary and important, it's not the final message that God has for us. It's not the final message. Yes, we will have guilt. Well, yes, we will be confronted and convicted of our sins. And that will happen, but it's not the final message. 
to assisted by the Levites, Nehemiah convinced the people to stop mourning and start celebrating. Stop mourning. Stop being sad about this. Yes, we, we're guilty of sin, but God has such a greater purpose in our lives, and he loves us so much more than that. God's word brings conviction, which leads to conviction, but then that conviction also brings us joy. And, it, and uh, our conviction of sin brings about repentance, and repentance joy. And for that same word, that same word of God that brings about the sin or shows us our sin also gives us that, that peace. Look at Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Your words are found and I ate them. Your words became a delight to me and the joy of my heart. For, they, for, I, am, for I am called by your name, Yahweh God of hosts. See, his word becomes a delight to me. A delight. Look at Psalms 19.8. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. See, the word of God is not to just keep us convicted. It's, it's a joy. We should celebrate that we have this great God who loves us and redeems us. The God who convicts us sin is the same God that offers grace and mercy. It's not enough for us to receive or read the word of God it's, or receive the word as others explain it. We must also rejoice in it. We need to take the word of God and just like honey on our lips. Just love it. And you'll do that as you learn, as you dig in and you start understanding it. Look at verses 10 through 12. Nehemiah 8, 10 through 12. Actually, starting in verse 9, 9 through 12. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them, or said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he had said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your stronghold. And the Levites quieted, quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Do not grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink and send portions and had a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. They rejoiced. See, the, the word of God is not boring. Yes, it does convict us, but at the same time, it can, we can celebrate in the freedom that we have in Christ. Did you catch that, that last phrase, the last little bit? They had a great celebration because they understood the words that were explained to them. When the people understood the word of God, it brings them to joy. We can have joy because God has found a solution to sin. He's found a solution, and that is Jesus Christ. Now notice that the people were urged to share what they had with others. See, this is significant in the light of what we learned in chapter 5 when the rich were taking advantage of the poor. Remember back then that the rich were taking advantage of people? And they were uh, high interest rates, and they were taking advantage of these people uh, uh, mortgaging their properties to, to get food, just to barely survive. When we understand God through understanding his word, we will have a contagious joy. When we understand God's word, we'll be excited. We'll be, it'll, it'll be deep. A deep passion for, and love will come into it. We'll, we'll be shared as someone once said, joy is magnified when it's shared. That's one of the points that Nehemiah makes. It says, eat something good, drink something, something sweet, and then go and share it. Share with those who don't have any. Share with the people that didn't have anything. This is a sacred day, so be joyful. Reverence and rejoicing go together. Philemon 6 challenges us to be active in sharing our faith so that we will 
have a full understanding of everything good we have in Christ. See, there's something wonderful about sharing the gospel, sharing God's love with other people. When you see, when you see people hear it and they light up, or even if they don't, there's just something about that, something wonderful about sharing your faith with others. We can't have true joy unless we share with, with others. When we get something, a bonus at work, what do we do? We share it with people, right? Might not share the bonus, but we share the, the fact that we got a bonus, right? We call our, our family and say, hey, oh, I just got a bonus check. I didn't expect that. You're excited. When you have joy and, we, and when, we're, when we're loving the Word of God and we have this relationship with God, guess what we're going to want to do? We're going to want to share it. See, the truth of the Bible is far from boring, far from dry. If we understand Scripture, we will come to a place of great joy. Every effort to make Christianity seem sad, heavy, strict, boring comes up short. The people who know the story of redemption the best are the freest, the most joyful, and the least likely to keep it to themselves. Let me give you a couple ways we can demolish myth too so that you can rejoice in what you understand from the Bible. There's a couple things you need to learn. Instead of, the first one is instead of focusing on how you've messed up, instead of focusing all your attention on your sins or, or the mistakes you've made or the mistakes other people's made, you know what? You need to focus on God. Let that stuff go. He's forgiven you. Don't hold on to it. Draw your attention to what God has done for you. Some of you are crippled with guilt, paralyzed with shame. And if you confess it, the Bible says that you're forgiven and free. Celebrate. It's time to move on with joy. Let that stuff go. For many years, I used to beat myself up on the, the sins of my past before I became a Christian. I felt so guilty of that. I had to learn how to just understand that God forgave me. What right do I have to hold on to that stuff? He forgave me. Am I greater than God? He forgave me, so I need to move on. If you have guilt and, and shame or sin in your life that, that from the past, let it go. God has. Isaiah 44.22 is a great verse to treasure if you're struggling with guilt and shame. It says this, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist, Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Let it go. And the second thing to debunk the myth number two is always look for ways to share it with others. Share your faith. Share your relationship with God with others. Be kind to one another. Be kind to people at the restaurants. Be kind to your neighbors. Show them the love of Christ. And share it. Ask God to give you an opportunity to share. And I'm not talking about some gospel presentation. I'm just talking about just sharing the love and the joy that you get from Christ. Share it. Myth number three is that the Bible is impossible to apply. So many people think that the Bible is impossible to apply. The myth that says, this myth says that God is out to make our lives miserable and just uh, for us to, and, and to give us a set of rules that are unobtainable. That's what this myth is. You know, I met a girl, I was witnessing to her for years, Jenny, had been, uh, my wife Jenny ended up leading her to Christ, um, and one of the reasons why she would not come to Christ when I was witnessing to her was that because she didn't want to give up um, sleeping with her boyfriend and drinking. She's like, well, you know, the Bible, I can't become a Christian because I didn't want to give that up. That was her reasoning. People think that it's a, it's a rule book. It's just a whole bunch of rules, and it's to make our lives miserable. Well, it's certainly true that we can't obey every single thing in the Bible. It's very difficult because of our sin nature. We can live out its truths and principles on a daily basis. We can't live out. We can't apply Scripture into our lives. We can do this on a daily basis. In fact, God's Word 
was given in order to transform our lives. We don't have to make the Bible relevant because it already is. It is relevant in our lives. It is relevant to today. Our challenge is to follow what we know to be true and ask the Holy Spirit to empower us and fill us and guide us with the Word of God. James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, reminds us that it's not enough to just hear the Word of God, but we must obey it also. So if he's talking about obeying it, and if he says there it's not, just, it's not good enough just to hear it, but actually obey it, then obviously we can apply it in our lives. You see, as we understand the, the Bible, we debunk the first myth, which says it's too, confu- or it's too difficult to understand. And as we start to understand it, we start celebrating, and we start receiving joy, and we get excited about it. So there we just debunk number two, that says it's too boring. And as we are ready to obey God, we destroy myth number three, which says it's impossible to apply. Take a look at verse 13 through 18. On the second day, the family leaders of all the people, along with the priests and the Levites, assembled before Ezra the scribe to study the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in booths during the festival of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and spread the news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hill country, bring back branches of olive and wild olive and myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as just as it is written. The people went out, brought back branches, and made booths for themselves on each of the rooftops and the courtyards and the courts of the house of God, the square by the water gate and the square by the gate of Ephraim. The whole community that had returned from exile made booths and lived in them. They had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, and there was tremendous joy. Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was an assembly according to the ordinance. See, we see in these verses that the Israelites found great joy in the obedience that they found. They realized that they weren't following God's Requests, what God wanted them to do in these celebrations. They weren't, they were celebrating it kind of halfway. They weren't doing it completely. They paid attention, as they paid attention to what they heard, in verse 14 they say that they discovered that they weren't fully following what God had in store. They weren't doing it com- completely. In the book of the law, there were specific directions on how they were to celebrate these various feasts. They're very detailed. For example, while they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, at different times in their history, they were supposed to set up booths with branches. And they realized that they were only doing part of what God wanted. They weren't completely following all his instructions. See, there was times in, in our lives where our problem isn't following God. It's just that we're not obeying him completely. We kind of sort of do it. Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of the Disciplines, has a great chapter on Christian service. Foster defines the difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. Choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. See, choosing to serve, you're still in charge. You're deciding everything. You serve on your terms. You can serve once a week, once a month, once a year, once a quarter, whatever you feel like it. You choose to give sacrificially or out of abundance or... Or you serve because you just want to do a little bit. You get to decide what you want to give. While good, and don't get me wrong, serving is good, many, many Christians choose to serve this way. We choose to just serve based on our schedule. We make our schedule and see if we have time to serve somewhere. But when we choose to be a servant, that's very different. You give up the right to be in charge. When you're a servant, 
you are no longer in charge. You decide to be a servant every day, all the time. You may want to serve when you don't like it or feel like it, but you do it because you're a servant. Someone may approach you for help, and you don't have the time to deal with it, but you do it because you're a servant. When we choose to be a servant, we surrender the right to decide who and what we'll serve at. When we're servants, no matter when, what, or where we serve, that's what a servant is. It's tough, isn't it? Being a servant's tough. The desire to be a servant for the Lord is a desire that comes from the heart. When you want to be a servant for the Lord, it comes deep. You need to have a willingness to go wherever, do whatever He asks you to do. A heart that seeks, seeks to bring glory to God. A pure heart. Just a unwielding desire to serve him. Let's take a look at a little bit of application of that. How do we be a servant? Once we come to a place where we view service as a lifestyle, it will be impossible for us to distinguish between the small and the large acts of service. We no longer feel that we need to calculate things. We no longer need to measure things which cause us exhaustion and and fear of failure. When we start measuring performance, we, start, we wonder if we're good enough. Instead, we will serve enemies as freely as we serve our friends. We will look for ways we can serve right where the Lord has us right now. When, we're, when we have a servant's heart, we don't go look for something else. We serve right where He has us. It may be simply listening to a friend in need. It may be opening our house up to a small group. It may be helping out, staying, coming in early for a Sunday morning Bible study and staying late and make sure everything's picked up and cleaned up. Maybe coming to help out in the uh, sanctuary or the, in the building. We have a, on the 24th, we have a cleanup day, maybe serving there. Whatever's needed. It may be Bearing burdens from your friends. Maybe your friend is going through financial struggles or emotional struggles and you're, and you're just bearing the burden and listening and helping. You serve where God has you right now. Like Jesus who placed a towel on his waist and knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. We too will have to come to a place of humility in order to become a servant. We have to become humble before God. As the people applied God's truth, they did it with an attitude of joy. Look at verse 17. It says, and their joy was very great. See, they realized what they did. They weren't following God to, the, the, to their whole ability. They weren't doing it the way they were supposed to do it. They needed to serve God with all of their heart. And once they realized that, they went out and they got the leaves and they got started worshiping and they started celebrating these feasts. And their joy was very great. When God gives you insight, no matter how strange or difficult it may, be, may appear to be, cultivate an attitude of complete commitment and unreserved obedience. Obey Him. When you obey Him, you will have a deep satisfaction that you are doing the right thing, no matter how hard it is. No matter how hard it is. I know there's an example of, uh, um, this, isn't a, this wasn't necessarily difficult, but Jenny has had times where, and she's tell, shared the story where she felt this, this desire to go do something for her coworker. I remember this a few years ago. She had, this, uh, she, she had this coworker that we had some extra Christmas gifts. I don't remember why we had some extras, but we had some extras, and, and she, it just put her, God put it on her heart to go share this with her coworker, and she didn't know why. But she did it. She went to her, she was a little nervous, went to her coworker. I said, hey, you know what? We have some things for you and your family for Christmas. And if I remember correctly, she started crying because they didn't have the money to take care of their kids for Christmas. Jenny didn't understand that beforehand. She was just obedient. That's all she did. She was obedient. And blessed that family. The daughter called us up. I think it was 16, 15, 16, something like that. Called us up. 
and said, thank you so much, because she, they weren't going to have a Christmas. Obey God. When he calls you to do something, be obedient to him. And have that deep satisfaction that it's the right thing to do. Just obey him. If we're going to be people of the book, we've got to live by the book. We have to serve. We have to be a servant like Christ. Let's look at some final application. Let me suggest three steps that will help you develop an application oriented to the Word of God. One is pray and ask God for personal transformation. When you pick up the Word of God and you start reading and you start studying, like I suggested, ask God to transform you. Ask Him to help you understand the Word of God. Help you be the person that He wants you to be. Ask Him to reveal what He wants you to do and where to go. And do whatever He says. Avoid the temptation to just study the Bible. Avoid that. It's not about head knowledge. It's about heart change. God wants to mold you into Christ-likeness. So study the Word of God. Ask Him to guide you. Ask Him to humble you. Ask Him to mold you into whatever He wants you to be. The second is expect to hear something that God wants you to apply. When you pick up the Word of God and you start going, expect Him to teach you. He will. He will guide you. When God reveals something to you, don't put it off. Don't bargain with Him. Don't, don't do it halfway. Do it. Be obedient to Him. Don't settle for spiritual mediocrity. Determine to be obedient. Follow God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And third, ask somebody to be your accountability partner. Find somebody, a friend, that's, that's bold enough to hold you accountable. If you're not picking up the Word of God, and you say, hey, I'm making a commitment to pick up the Word of God five times a week. I'm going to study it for 30 minutes five times a week. Have a friend call you and check up on you. And do the same for them. Have an accountability partner. And not your spouse either. They'll let you slide too much. Won't you? <laughs> Jenny's like, no. <laughs> yeah. Find somebody to hold you accountable, to keep you in check, help you, encourage you to keep reading the Scriptures. You know, Paul, uh, Timothy had Paul. All through Scripture, they had friends and people that were holding each other accountable and, and, and growing together. I want to close this message by first addressing those who are believers. In every genuine revival in history, there have been two major thrusts, two major things, two major things that go on in revival. One is the proclamation and preaching of God's Word. And the second is responsive mobilization of God's people. We want revival here. We're preaching God's word, but we need to mobilize. We need to serve. As you've listened to God's word today, this message this morning, some of you are ready to be renewed. You want to respond because you know you need to be personally revived. So it's so easy to slip. It's so easy to get out of your routines. It's so easy to to, to ignore the Word of God from time to time or, or to say no to serving. It's so easy to do those things. Our natural tendency is to head south spiritually. Our natural tendency, our sinful tendencies are to avoid and not seek God. Some of you have lost your joy. Some of you might have lost your joy and maybe your spiritual life's a little dry. It happens. Don't beat yourself up about it. But get back into the Word of God. It happens in, in spiritual life. Spiritual life is up and down. We walk away a little bit and we come back. Hopefully we're consistently improving, walking closer to God. And if you have that little dry spiritual life, maybe you can relate to the psalmist in Psalm 85, 6. says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Maybe, you're, maybe you feel that feeling 
Lord, revive me. I want to feel your presence. I want to serve you. But I feel kind of, kind of dry. I feel like the Christian life's kind of boring. Repent. And when I mean repent, repent from the fact that you're not seeking God. You're not seeking him first. And go back to him. There's a town in Canada called Wabush. And it was completely isolated for years, for many, many years. And eventually they cut a road through to reach the town. Now it has one road leading into it and run road leading out. If someone would travel eight hours to get to Wabush, there's only one way they can leave, and that's by turning around. Same thing's true in our spiritual life. If our spiritual life is dry, the only way to do it is turn around. That's what the word repentance is, to turn from. To turn around, 180 degrees. Some of you have spent too much time in this town. And with this town, there's only one way out, the road that God built. In order to take that road, you must first turn around. Are you ready to be fully committed to God? Fully committed. If so, commit to understand, rejoice, and obey God's word. My second invitation is for those of you that have not put your faith in Christ or have not put your faith in God at all. You need to also turn. You need to turn to God. You need to turn toward Him. But at first taste humility, you have to humble yourself, admit that you had some sin, that you haven't sought God, and turn toward Him. We're going to sing a song and we're going to have an, uh, a time of invitation. And this is a time that maybe you are that person, the first person. You're a believer and you're, you're saved. You are definitely saved. You're going to heaven and that's great. But maybe your spiritual life isn't where you hoped it would be. Maybe your spiritual life is dry. Maybe your spiritual life is uh, in need of some revival. Take this time, this, this invitation. These invitations are not just for non-believers to have an opportunity to confess their faith. It's also for believers to come at the altar and say, Lord, I'm sorry. This is what I need. I, I need your help. It's an act of submission. It's an act of humility. So take this time, as we're seeing, take this time to come up and pray. Kneel down before the altar. It takes courage. I'll tell you that. It takes courage to be obedient. It takes courage to have that humility. But you will feel... God's presence when you take that step. Let's pray.